Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we ask you to do what you would do for us in blessing us, giving us understanding, wisdom, and help us to apply it as we are able to, that we might serve you well in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting together a new journey through some relatively uncharted waters as we begin a series on the life of the prophet Elisha, bringing as we are this morning, beginning as we are this morning, in the middle section of the book known as First Kings, with the passage that relates to us his calling to the ministry in chapter 19 before moving on next week and then further on into the book of Second Kings, where most of the record of the ministry of Elisha can be found. Now, the events that make up the life of Elisha give the willing preacher an abundance of material to work with, with not only miracles and strange events to note and to learn from, but numerous lessons and principles to apply. And why are we going to be looking at the prophet Elisha, so you ask? Well, that's a good question, for it has an easy answer. Last year, that is 2020, we spent some of our lockdown time together exploring the ministry of Elisha's predecessor and forerunner, Elijah. And so it seems a natural thing to do to follow the text through and move on to the ministry of Elisha. And I do that this morning with something really quite neat. For in the text before us, we meet both Elijah and Elisha. And so it's kind of like a continuation of the series on Elijah that moves naturally into this series on Elisha. In fact, so neat is this dovetail that the last account we looked at that told us of events in the life of Elijah was in fact the first account in which Elisha appeared. You will have heard this morning that Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19 in great depression and despair to meet with the Lord God of Israel and that after meeting with God there, God sent him back with the encouraging news that not only had he kept for himself 700 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal, but also that Elijah was to anoint Elisha as his successor. So it's not surprising that the two should be so closely allied in our thinking and sometimes even confused. Not that their ministries were identical, far from it, but they were complementary as we shall soon see for ourselves. Now, before we get to the text, it's helpful to see something here that's important. If it was in the case of Elijah that his ministry was a foretaste of the ministry of John the Baptist, remembering that John the Baptist was even asked if he was Elijah, because he sounded like and in appearance was so much like Elijah, and it won't surprise you to hear me say that the ministry of Elisha in so many ways, reminds us of the ministry of Jesus. And this is not an accident. In the Old Testament, Elisha stands as a type of Christ. He wasn't the Messiah, but his ministry was like that of the one who was to come, and who was and is the Messiah, Jesus. So these verses from 1 Kings 19 that we heard today form a necessary backdrop to all that took place in Elisha's ministry and they demand our attention. 
So let's get to them and fill in some background and see what we can learn from them. First, we start where we began with this series on Elijah by noting again the spiritual decline that Elisha was called to confront. If you can recall anything at all about the days in which Elijah lived and moved, then you will be quickly able to relate to the circumstances and difficulties that Elisha faced. The rulers of the nation of Israel, King Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel, to put it plainly, were idolaters. They worshipped and served the god Baal, and had done everything in their power to thwart the worship of the true God of Israel and the ministry of his prophet. And this was no passing fad. Joram, Ahab's son, walked in the ways of his father as a committed idolater, and so did Ahaziah, who succeeded Joram. These were days of spiritual bankruptcy, days when after the prophetic ministry of Elijah, the people of Israel, including their rulers, refused to walk in the ways of the Lord and continued to reap the consequences of their rebellion. The drought that was felt in the days of Elijah was nothing compared to the famine that was to come in the days of Elisha. And as it was with Elijah, so it was with Elisha, that miracles, even the twenty of them that Elisha performed, had no effect upon the hardness of the hearts of the kings and the rulers of the people. These were spiritually barren days, when even the hearts of people were unmoved by clear and compelling evidences that God was speaking to him, his people, calling them back to himself before the nation was too far gone and judgment would fall upon them. The situation in Elisha's day is, of course, quite similar to how it was in the days of Jesus. It's interesting to note that Elisha is second only to Jesus in the top ten of miracle performers in the scriptures. But keep this in mind. Not even the signs and wonders found in the ministry of the Son of God had any lasting effect in terms of unbelief of the people who saw them. They saw men raised from the dead. They saw blind men receive their sight again. They saw the lame walking, the crippled straightened. But did they believe? Not at all. Same here. And it was not only miracles that failed to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord, it was also the judgments of God. The drought and then the famine. These two were the means that God used to speak to his people. But they were still deaf and unmoved. And so here we are, steadily progressing in the 21st century, and what's our situation? Well, fires, earthquakes, wars, famines, floods. Oh yeah, a global pandemic. A godless society, godless leaders, godless standards, idolatry abounding, unbelief prospering. And yet, despite the judgments that fall upon us, the heavy, heavier they are, the blinder people become, and the more hard-hearted they grow about the truth. It was so in the days of Elisha, it was so in the days of Jesus, and it will be so until the end of all things. Second, and consider the prophetic ministry that he, Elisha was called to exercise. 
Why was it that God called Elisha to serve him and what type of ministry was he called to? For a moment, step back from the close-up examination of these events to take a bird's eye view. Zoom out, so to speak, and consider the way in which the ministry of Elisha is presented to us. There is such a contrast between the ministries of Elijah and Elisha that the only parallel to this situation is that of the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. Remember how the angel said to Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, that John's ministry would be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, Jesus came after John, just as Elisha came after Elijah. So it's worth exploring the connection between Elisha and Jesus, and if we do this, this is what we find. Elijah was a man like John the Baptist, solitary in the desert and alone. Elisha, however, like Jesus, lived among people and mixed freely with them. Elijah's appearance consisted of shaggy locks and sheepskin and who brought down fire from heaven and spoke with stern words and judgment, calling people to repentance. Elisha, however, again like Jesus, spoke truthfully and forcefully, but his ministry was so much more characterised by healing and restoration of mind, body and soul that we can truthfully say that Elisha's ministry parallels the type of things that Jesus ended up doing. Even Elisha's miracles resemble Jesus' miracles. Elisha fed the hungry. Elisha raised the dead. Elisha wept over the sins of his people. But then even more comparisons can be made when we consider the three prophets of that time, Elijah, Elisha and Jonah. Look at what these three had in common. Elijah raised the dead. Elisha raised the dead. And a man came alive when his dead body touched Elisha's dead body. And Jonah came back from the dead. Think of it this way. Elisha died and was buried, and in his death gave life to another just like Jesus. Jonah also died in symbol and sank to the depths but returned again just like Jesus. Elijah didn't die, but in his journey into heaven cast his mantle upon another who would do even greater works than he did, just like Jesus. Now all this cannot be a simple coincidence, but actually was a foretaste of the one who was to come, the one who would be preceded by another who came in the spirit and power of Elijah and yet who would do more miracles and show even more grace and mercy than Elisha. Ultimately, this is the significance of the prophet we know as Elisha, that he, like Joseph, like David, like Moses before him, he too pointed forward to Jesus. Elisha was a type of Jesus. He wasn't the Messiah, but he was a shadow of the one who was to come. So as we look at his ministry and his life, may it be that we also look beyond the pages of the Old Testament to see the fulfilment in the new and the one Elisha pointed to, Jesus himself. And third, consider the urgent call that Elisha was forced to consider. 
Put yourself in Elisha's shoes and picture in your mind, if you can, the foreboding figure of Elijah striding towards you as you're busy ploughing the family farm with a team of oxen, minding your own business, mind perhaps on other things. It was quite an unexpected call. He was in the field, not in his study. He was ploughing and not praying. Picture also, if you can, Elijah coming right up to Elisha and without a moment's hesitation, (coughs) removing his cloak and putting it on him, indicating, if nothing else, that he was thereby anointed as the successor of the ministry. What an experience to go through. No words spoken as far as we know, just the placing of the cloak upon the shoulders. How all this sat with Elisha isn't told to us. After all, humanly speaking, who'd want to be a prophet? It was certainly no position of prestige that Elisha was being called to, but a life of service, often as a member of the lower part of society. Prophets were hated because they told the truth and were rarely popular like false prophets who could tell the people what they wanted to hear. The text gives us very little information about how Elisha responded. But there is enough to form some picture, and we can describe his response as follows. For a start, it was committed. Elisha could have simply shrugged the cloak off and let it fall to the ground. But the text says that his first response was to leave the oxen he was ploughing with and run after Elijah. This was not the action of a man who was half-hearted or uncertain, but one from the outset who was determined to carry it through. Then we can say it was costly. The fact that Elisha was ploughing land with oxen indicates that his family were wealth enough to own some land and some oxen, twelve pair of them. Elijah had come from obscurity, but Elisha was not in that situation. This would cost him. He had a family to leave, and wealth to leave, to take on the task. And from his determination to farewell his parents before he left, perhaps we glean that he had a close relationship with them. And from the fact that those oxen were killed and offered as a sacrifice, we glean that perhaps this was final. There was no going back. Then also his response was immediate. The evidence of the now dead oxen is enough for us to note the quality of his response. The text says he arose and went. This prompt obedience is almost unmatched until two fishermen named James and John had a voice speak to them, a call them, and they too immediately got up and left their nets and their father and followed Jesus. It could be said that Elisha severed all his ties. And his actions were quite the opposite of the man we read of and we read of in Luke 9 this morning, who approached Jesus and offered himself for service, but in the end found family ties too strong to leave, too dear to break, prompting Jesus to speak in terms that Elisha would have agreed with. No one who puts his hand to the plough but then turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it was that Elisha set off after Elijah 
not to be the one who is the teacher and the master, but the one to be the student and taught. In order to lead, he first had to learn sacrifice, to forsake, to leave, and to serve. Well, what then of the text and us? Let's note these things. Let's note that there's a passing on of the baton. Although Elijah knew that this moment would mean that he would eventually bow out of being the Lord's prophet, this did not mean that all ministry was coming to an end. In God's plans and purposes, this anointed successor was chosen to carry on the task, to carry the baton, as it were, as a representative of the next generation. God called Elisha into the picture to carry on the work that Elijah had begun. Now there's a sense in which this was not only true then but also remains true now. Ministry workers come and go from time to time but ministry continues. I think about this as a preacher. I remind myself that I'm not necessarily declaring a message that has never been heard before in this city or from this pulpit. Strong foundations have been laid by others over many years and I'm simply building upon that foundation. But it's not just for preachers, is it? <clears throat> for in a similar kind of way, aren't we all also in Elisha's shoes? Not in every sense, no, but we are in this one sense, that we are the next generation of those who have been trusted with the gospel, the gospel that changes hearts and therefore the world. When Jesus appeared at the end of his earthly days before returning to heaven, like Elijah, didn't he pass on the task of making disciples to the next generation of his disciples? Well, that's what Matthew 28 tells us, that when Jesus commanded his disciples soon after his resurrection to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, his intentions were clear. With the verb in this command, the bit about making disciples rather than the going. How are you going at doing that? How would you assess your progress? See, as far as I'm aware, the command has never been withdrawn and exemptions have never been issued. The command remains, the need remains. And doesn't that call to make disciples of all nations carry with it some continuing effect? It wasn't given just to the apostles. It wasn't a task given to an exclusive few, but to all who would believe, and therefore by believing, be those who have the task of being disciple-makers. But the workers, said Jesus, are few. And so we are therefore to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers out into the harvest field. But then secondly here, and flowing on from this, let's note that there's a question to be considered. That question isn't for Elijah or Elisha to answer, but for you and to me. And the question is this, which category do you belong in out of the following two? Are you in the category of those who have heard the call to serve the Lord, to be harvest workers, going out to sow and to reap? Or are you in the category of needing to know the Lord, part of the harvest, who need to hear the gospel all over again? Either missionaries or part of the mission field. 
The scriptures don't allow for any in-between, and neither should we. See, having believed in the Lord Jesus, now your privilege is to serve him. And lest you protest that you have not had a direct hand tap you on the shoulder, let me beg to differ. One greater than Elijah has already called you, and with a clear voice, an unmistakable voice. And furthermore, all of Scripture reinforces and highlights this call and underlines it. It may not be a specific call that some receive to go to some place or spend their lives in ministry, but it could be that general call that all of God's people share in. So third, there's a response to be made. The only thing that remains uncertain now is how you respond. And how you respond won't necessarily be seen within the activity that takes place within the confines of the four walls of the church. But in the world, amongst your family, with your friends, at your workplace, in your speech, and through your life choices, that's where it will show or won't show. And that's where we all need help to respond to the call with a deliberate, calculated response of commitment, faith and obedience, which also includes learning to sacrifice, to forsake, to leave and to serve, like Elisha. Will you pray with me for that? Let's pray. What a great privilege it is, Heavenly Father, to be called your children and to follow in the steps of those who walked before you long ago. And we are thankful for the record concerning the prophet Elisha that we're about to learn more about. We're thankful for his faithfulness. We're thankful for his willing obedience, reminding us of James and John and Peter and Andrew as they got up and followed the Lord Jesus into the unknown, uncertain about many things, but sure that was the right response. Help us also to trust and obey, to go forward, trusting you, but with obedience as servants of yours. And bless us as we think about the prophet Elisha in the weeks to come, that our hope in you and our clearer picture of the Lord Jesus as he was pictured in the Old Testament, might be given to us that we might follow him with glad hearts. We pray in his name. Amen.